The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, it seems appropriate on Mother's Day to begin our time together listening to the prayers of a very special and thankful mother. Uh, she'd been through a difficult season, difficult season really with God. For years, she had wanted to be a mother and could not conceive. She was barren. And then the Lord blessed her, and she had a son. That son would grow up to be the great prophet that this book that we've been studying is named after, Samuel. The mother's name was Hannah, and her prayer in 1 Samuel 2 really sets the tone and the, really the outline for this book of Samuel. And so as we conclude our study, I want us to end where we began. Hannah was a woman, she was a mother who knew her God very well. And that's just my prayer for you this morning, not just the mothers in the room, but all of us, that we would know God and worship Him for who He is. She knew at least three things about Him. She knew first that He was sovereign. This is a woman that the text tells us God had closed her womb. And then he had opened it. 1 Samuel 2 verse 3, she she prayed, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. She prayed, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Her God is a sovereign God. She also knew that the true God is a holy God. She exclaimed this, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. I pray that you would find that rock this morning. The the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. But he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Her God is a holy God. And Hannah also knew that God was merciful. She prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation by mercy through grace. If you're feeling like you're not measuring up this morning to what, what you're, you have in front of you, hear that God is merciful. There's no greater purpose in our lives than to know and worship God. And the books of First and Second Samuel present God to us. And all of His sovereign, holy mercy. We conclude our study this morning with what seems at first to be a peculiar, peculiar event, maybe a Mother's Day sermon on a census that David um, takes. Doesn't sound like initially like something that you would think would be the right thing to do. King David takes a, a count or a census of the people here at the end of the book, and then God judges him because of it, and all of Israel because of it. By the way, it seems like God actually arranges the whole thing. But his judgment is not the last word. 
The book of Samuel ends with a picture of God's chosen king arranging a costly sacrifice that actually averts God's wrath. So there's no picking and choosing what we like and don't like from God. When we open the Bible, we're faced with the one true God. He is God. It's all or nothing. And and friends, he's here this morning. He is here in all of his holy judgment. He's here in all of his mystery and mighty sovereignty. And he is here ready to display absolutely unspeakable mercy. The question for us this morning is this. Will we put our lives completely in his hands? Is he your God? Is he your rock? I want to argue that we should find our security and identity and joy and salvation in God through Christ alone. We've said that the title of this series is Our God and King, that God is our King. And I just want to give you three reasons from our passage why that's true. And they really echo from from Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. They're listed there in your notes. If you want to follow along, I'll let you know what they are up front. Just three attributes of God that we see in this passage. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is holy. And then finally, number three, God is merciful. Don't let your guard down on this chapter. Don't pass over it. David taking a census of the people is just a backdrop for displaying God's glory. For him magnifying his mercy in just an incredible way. His anointed king is going to be exalted. Here in 2 Samuel, yes, but fully in Christ Jesus. And also in our own lives. That our hearts would be lifted high in Christ today. That's my prayer. So let's look, for, let's look first at who this God is, first in his sovereignty. Number one, God is sovereign. It doesn't take long as you're reading this chapter to come face to face with this reality. I mean, just look at verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. He the Lord incited David against them, Israel, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. The again there probably is a reference back to chapter 21. If you remember uh, when God's anger was kindled against Israel because of blood guilt that was on Saul and his family. But here we're not told why God's anger is kindled. We could take some good guesses. Apparently that's not the main point. That's not our main takeaway of this text is to know why God's wrath is, is aimed at Israel. The point is that God is angry. And we know enough already about humanity and about Israel and about God's character to know this is a justified wrath, a righteous wrath. Now, the puzzling thing is well, what God does with this anger. Namely, he incites David against Israel in the form of taking a census or numbering the people. And so this, I think, raises several questions for us. Uh, First, why would a census be a kind of judgment? Or or why would it be wrong to go and do this? 
Well, the answer is we don't really know. In and of itself, a census is not evil. It's not wrong. Uh, We have a book in the Bible named after a census of counting people. It's called Numbers. But it doesn't take a whole lot of investigation to see what's likely behind the census. When David presents the idea, for example, to his general, Joab, and we don't have time to go into Joab's history, but we know that Joab's got a little bit of a sketchy history. He's kind of about himself and exalting himself. But even Joab sees this as a bad idea and likely a sign of a lack of trust in God. Look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king after David presents this idea, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? It becomes clear as you read this that the, the purpose for the census is to kind of size up the military strength of Israel. And so David's word prevails and the census is taken over about a 10-month, almost a 10-month period. Joab comes back and reports these numbers. Look at verse 9. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. So you see the way that, that, that these numbers are presented in military terms. This is likely what David is delighting in. He is likely leaning on military strength instead of trusting God to provide, to fight his battles for him, to be his rock and his shield. And let's just be honest, these numbers would make any king feel secure. It looks pretty good for Israel. We're doing all right. But David wasn't to be just like any other king. He was supposed to find his security in God. And so, in God's sovereignty, he uses David as an instrument of judgment against his own people. He incites David against them to take this census that is ultimately sinful. What do you do with that? How do you think through that? It's interesting if you look at the parallel passage in Chronicles. So, 1 Chronicles 21 This is what 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 says. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So perhaps what we have going on here is two different authors recording the same event, but pointing to both a primary and a secondary cause of the event. Perhaps it is Satan that is the one doing the inciting of David against Israel, but Satan's activities fall under the sovereign plan of Almighty God. We know this if we've read much of the Bible. We know from Job 1, Satan was responsible for various disasters that fell on Job, and yet Job was right to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. So we should understand texts like this, from texts like this, that the Lord as one author says, is able to use both good and evil human acts for his purposes without in any way diminishing human responsibility for the deeds themselves. And without in any way partaking in the evil himself. So in Genesis 50 verse 20, we read that Joseph had said to his brothers who tried to kill him, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. For good. 
Their actions were evil, but God was totally sovereignly ruling their actions to bring about good. The ultimate example of this is, of course, the cross. Those who nailed Jesus to the cross were fully responsible for their sin, and yet it was God's plan before the foundation of the world. Divine sovereignty does not erase human responsibility, nor does human responsibility erase divine sovereignty. David was sinning by taking the census, and he'll confess that over and over again in our text. But David's actions are not in any way removed from God's sovereign purposes. And listen, I don't mean to present that to you as something that should easily compute in your mind. I don't. It's absolutely mysterious, but it's also absolutely biblical. It's absolutely true. It's reality. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, this is part of your walk with God. This is part of what it means for you to know God. And we're actually revealing our own arrogance and really idolatry when we assume that God owes us an explanation for everything in our life. He must reveal his purposes for everything that happens to me. If we say we trust God, but then demand an answer from him about why everything happens and then what is going to happen next, what kind of trust is that really? Now, trusting God is actually being content with some mystery and unknown in our lives, knowing that his ways are not our ways and there are secret things that belong to the Lord alone. Are you trusting God this morning? Especially when you don't know all the answers. Especially when you can't actually trace his hand and say, well, this is obviously why God has done this, so that this would happen. He's righteous and good and does good. Brothers and sisters, trust him. It is easier to trust in things that you can lay your hands on. I wonder if there's some things that you are delighting in for your security this morning. Perhaps the reason God is inciting this census is to clearly show and illustrate the people where their sin actually was in turning away from trust in him. So beware in trusting in those numbers on your retirement account. Or if you're like me and you're a pastor, those numbers in attendance or those budget numbers. Or anything that would offer security for you apart from God's sovereign goodness in your life. Because we may not and often will not understand everything that God is doing, but we can and must trust Him because He's sovereign. He is also holy. That's the second thing I want you to see in this passage. God is holy. So look back at the story here. David has prevailed over Joab's objections. And the census is now complete. The numbers are in. But at the point of completion, at some point in there, David is convicted of his sin. Look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Really, this whole chapter, I think, is just a great summary of David's rule and who he is as a king. He is a great sinner. David is a spectacular sinner. Um, 
But he is also a great repenter who regularly turns from his sins and confesses them to God from his heart. And so here, David's heart strikes him. I think this is similar to when David went in the cave and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You remember that? And his heart struck him. There's nothing inherently sinful about cutting cloth or inherently sinful about taking a census. But it's the heart behind the action that is convicting David. And he confesses what he's done is sinfully foolish. And then this request that the Lord would take away his iniquity, it says volumes about David. It says volumes about who he, who he sees his God to be. And then what happens next really says volumes about who God is. This question about, about taking away iniquity, it looms over all of these verses. How could God actually answer this prayer? If what we said already about him is true, if he is holy, how can he actually take away sin? I think many in evangelical churches today, maybe some in this room, um, have a difficult time answering that question and might find what happens next surprising. We might expect him to just sort of poof, take it away. Many have misunderstood God's grace to be kind of looking the other way at sin or letting it go. But we forget that the God of grace is also a holy God. God is righteous. He can't simply let sin go or he would cease to be God. He would cease to be righteous. All sin must be dealt with. All sin must be judged. And we see that unfold in our passage. Look down at verse 11 after David's confession. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. I don't know if that was what you're expecting to read. Again, mystery here. Why does God give David options here? Why does he allow him to choose the judgment on the people and the way in which his wrath will fall? There's really no good option here. Like sometimes... Um, in the car, I hear these games going on of, would you rather? Would you rather be dropped in a shark tank with a great white for 10 minutes or have your leg bit off by an alligator? No real good answer there. You have to kind of calculate the risk. And David is, is probably thinking about these things. You'll notice that these options, none of them are good. The timelines and severity are correlated. The shorter the time frame, the more severe the judgment and vice versa. My friends, this is really clear from what we see here. The wages of sin are death. Sin brings about judgment. And we're going to come back to verse 14 in just a moment. The way, the, what David chooses, he essentially chooses not to choose. But to throw himself upon the mercy of God instead of man. So perhaps that's his way of saying, okay, I don't want option two where I'm going to have to run from my enemies and I'm, I'm left for man to decide my fate. I want to leave myself in God's hands. Perhaps that's what he's doing. Obviously, God's still sovereign over war. 
Nevertheless, we read, continuing there in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. This pestilence is God's chosen judgment. Not just on David, for he seems to be actually unaffected personally, but against Israel for its sin that had already kindled God's wrath. And the result of their sin is terrible. Can you fathom, just in your mind, picture 70,000 people dead in three days at max. Baytown, gone. That's Baytown. That's Lake Charles, Louisiana, gone. This pestilence is likely a dreadful, infectious disease that breaks out and, and brings rapid death. But this was clearly from the Lord, verse 15, and in, in, in his control, it, it, notice it went from morning until the appointed time. God is measuring and, and purposing his wrath. For instance, let this be a reminder to us, especially if we tend to assume that our sin is less of a big deal than it actually is. We tend to assume God is a lot more like us than he actually is. The Bible says, Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you're, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not sure, I just want you to know how glad I am that you're here with us and you're always welcome here. And I want to just encourage you to, to ask questions and think carefully about what I'm saying right now, especially about God. This isn't a popular message about you and me and God, but it is what the Bible says. God will not excuse your sin. God is not like you or like me. We are weak. We are flawed. We can get tired and just say, yeah, just go ahead and do it. Forget it. God is not that way. He is good. He is righteous and he cannot excuse our rebellion against him or he would cease to be who he is. This is absolutely vital to understand. Your sin, your lying or lust and self, selfishness and lack of thankfulness, deception, adultery, anger, it will be judged. The people of Israel trusted in their numbers and in a day or two, 70,000 lie dead on the ground. There's no way around it. God is holy like no other. There is no escaping him. Friend, please listen carefully. Consider what it will be like to stand before a holy God on judgment day. What should happen? What will happen? We've seen here that God is sovereign and that God is holy. And if we stopped there, it would be enough to worship him. But it wouldn't be good news for us. But we won't stop there because the Bible doesn't stop there. It continues. And we'll think now about number three, the third attribute about God that we see here, that he is merciful. God is merciful. 
And friends, David already knows this about God, doesn't he? He already knows this about God, that, that even in his wrath, his wrath comes wrapped in mercy. The very fact that David's heart strikes him with his sin, apart from any rebuke or confrontation or getting caught, that's a mercy from God. So David therefore can confidently throw himself on God, which is exactly what he does in verse 14. Go back there and we'll, we'll read that verse now. David said to Gad, looking at these options, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Friends, that is the main point of this sermon. God's mercy is great. Let us fall into his hands. David knows that God is holy. He knows that he himself is a great sinner deserving judgment, but he also knows that God's mercy is great. Friend, I wonder if you know that about God, that his mercy is great. Whatever man may say or promise or offer you, there is no security ultimately unless you put yourself in God's merciful hands. You can easily put yourself in man's hands. You want to get your identity as a person? Get a lot quicker from man by what others say about you. You want to find your worth in what others say about you? Well, you can do it through man, through how they approve of you. You can worship and please men to get what you want and manipulate the system. You can serve man and be controlled by man, but there is no salvation in man, no help, no mercy. And David knows this, and so he flings himself on God's mercy. And then at the rest of this chapter, God is going to put that mercy on display for us. So pick it up in verse 16. The the middle of this terrible scene, the angel of death is destroying. Pestilence is being executed. Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who was working the destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So the angel that the Lord had appointed to destroy the people, by the way, that sounds a lot like Exodus. He had just set his sights on Jerusalem. He'd been going after it, doing what God had called him to do in this destructive plague. And now you can sort of see this black cloud gathering over Jerusalem. Jerusalem representing the city of David the one that God had covenanted with for an everlasting kingdom where the Ark of the Covenant lies, all the promises of God revolving there. And just before it is being destroyed, God puts a stop to the judgment. And we can, I think, infer early. He relents. And the angel is stopped, notice, at a particular place, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And it's here that I think another mystery is played out just before our eyes. David sees it. David, David sees what is going on. He, he's able to look into the spiritual realm and see the angel of destruction. What kind of impression do you think that makes on David? As you read the Psalms, remember they're written by someone who saw that. Pick it up in verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned 
and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Friends, this is David's heart on display. You want to know who David is? Kind of at bottom, this is it. He's a shepherd king that longs to protect his sheep. And he here assumes their guilt. He, he seeks to take their punishment upon himself. He asks that God's hand of judgment, listen, would be against him and against his father's house, his family. And does that sound familiar? And we have to assume at this point that David does not know that, that God has relented of the calamity. There is again a mysterious connection between David's prayer and the actual, what, the, the, the relenting of God. How are they connected? They both happen. God relents, David prays. I hope that's an encouragement to you as you pray. But we need to just apply here and think, okay, what we've already said about God, we know he's holy. How can he actually do this? How can he relent? How can he allow sin to go unpunished? How can he show mercy and still be just? And the answer comes in verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. The answer is sacrifice. Now, where would this altar be built? On this threshing floor of Arunas. And this is the exact spot, if you remember, where the angel had stopped destruction, where God's wrath was turned away. And it's on this very spot that the Lord commands David to build an altar. Friends, this is no coincidence. We don't know much about Aruna. Uh, perhaps he's one of the last Jebusite kings. We're not sure, alive at the time. But we do know something about where this threshing floor is located. Again, Second Chronicles 3, verse 1. Just, just flip there real quick. Second Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Aruna is likely not a personal name. Ornan is his personal name. So we're on Mount Moriah. That's the same mountain that, that Abraham had offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice. We also know from Second Chronicles 3, what we just read, that this site would be the place where Solomon is going to build the temple. This is to become the central place of sacrifice for the people. I just hope you see that, that connection. This, this place where God's wrath is going to be averted and sacrifice made. God's mercy is directly related to his work of atonement. He shows great mercy by relenting from this destruction, but that mercy comes at a price. A substitute has to be required. Now, the last part of chapter 24 just shows us how David gets this land. And you pick it up there in verse 21. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? 
David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Friend, do you see what's going on? Think about it. Why is David turning down this offer to use this threshing floor for free? Well, God's told him that he should purchase it. But it's because I think he knows something about the holiness of God and something about the depth of his own sin. David's words there in verse 24 could fill a sermon all by themselves. See there what he says. Atonement for sin is costly. There is a price to be paid. It's not cheap. It's not free. And so David pays a great price for the threshing floor. And it was there that he would offer these burnt offerings, which were to atone for sin through the killing and burning of animals and and peace offerings, which would celebrate this union with God from the, the burnt offerings. There's no redemption or atonement without a costly sacrifice. I think there's another connection that you could think about here as it relates to worship and and just our communion with God. These offerings were a form of worship. and, And David says, worship that costs me nothing is worthless. Worship that costs me nothing is worthless. Beloved, we live in a consumption focused, consumeristic world. One author said recently, pastor, that anyone who encourages self-denial is from the devil. Brother, sister, what does following Jesus cost you? Obviously, grace is costly, that Christ would die for us, and it it is free to us. And then Jesus calls us, as I read this week with With my discipleship group, we're reading through Luke's gospel, reading Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Christianity is losing your life for Jesus. Dying to self to live for true joy and the true king. Discipleship is costly, and it is glorious. It costs Jesus everything to save us. What is it costing you to follow him and to serve him? The chapter ends here with this good news. Again, that the plague is averted from Israel. The Lord responded to to David's plea. The, The king sacrifices on behalf of the people. What a great picture to end on in First and Second Samuel. 
David's story isn't actually over. It continues on into 1 Kings. But this is where the author of Samuel wants to leave us with a reminder about God's sovereignty, about God's holiness, about God's mercy. And especially with a pointer both to the goodness and the inadequacy of David as a king. Which makes us ask, well then what's the answer? If not David, who will be that king? And friends, all of the Bible is written to answer that question. King David is one of the greatest men to have ever lived. And his kingdom, at best, displays outstanding qualities. But David is not the answer to our greatest problem. He could not save his people, as we see here, from the righteous wrath of God. But his life and his rule point to the one who could and who can. God's righteous wrath rests upon mankind because of our sin. And the only way that sin can be dealt with will be through judgment upon sinners. So think about those 70,000. Except think about eternal death. Judgment upon sinners or through an atoning, costly sacrifice. David's cry as the shepherd king to sacrifice himself for the sheep. His prayer that God's wrath would actually fall on him or someone from his family instead of the sheep. And a thousand years later, after David prayed that, God answers that prayer. What does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. He says, Father, let your hand of judgment fall upon me, David's greater son. His life was that valuable, sinless, and his sacrifice that costly. It's his life that would pay, the Bible uses the word ransom, the ransom that would rescue us from our sin. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, all of the Bible is pointing to this. It was on Mount Moriah when God stayed his hand, Abraham's hand, from sacrificing his son. And what did God do? He provided a substitute instead. It was on Mount Moriah where God stayed the hand of the angel from continuing to destroy Jerusalem and called David to provide a sacrifice of burnt offerings and peace offerings to avert God's justice. It was on this site where Solomon built the temple that stood as a continual sign of the blood needed to avert God's judgment from his people. And it was at the cross where wrath and mercy finally collided. Isaac was spared after a journey of three days. Jerusalem was spared after a plague that lasted three days. Jesus was not spared. That black cloud returned. And Jesus was the sacrifice. It had to be Jesus. All of the judgment that we deserved fell upon him. And after three days, he rose. And because of that, we can be spared from God's wrath. The very place, the cross, where God's wrath is averted, 
where justice is done is the place where mercy is purchased. So friend, wherever you are this morning, let yourself fall into the hands of this God. Stop trusting in man. Stop trying to pretend to be something that you aren't. Stop trying to atone for your own sin. Stop trying to hide. Follow David's example. Repent of your sin and look to the greater king. Fall into the hands of the mighty one whose mercy is great. Friends, that's the message of 2 Samuel. Let yourself fall upon this sovereign, holy, merciful God. Is he your God? Let's pray. Lord, I pray the answer would be yes for everyone in this room. That you would be our God. Thank you for the richness of this time in your word. These many months of of studying 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel. Lord, we pray that we would see the the encouragement and the, the fruit from that for many, many years as a church. As we see the beauty of who you are and how it culminates in your exalted, anointed king. Lord, we pray that we would live lives that are completely trusting in you, that are completely aware of not just your, your holiness, not just your sovereignty, but also your amazing mercy. And may we be a faithful witness to that mercy in this city, in this community, on this campus. Lord, we love you. We worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.